Welcome to the Building Healthy Organizations podcast. We understand how the human brain works and how that impacts behavior in the workplace. I'm glad you joined us today for our continued journey to understand how to build a healthy organization. Well, we've arrived at part five of our series on recession-proofing your organization. In the series, we've explored many different elements, and we started with the understanding that recession-proofing is really about first understanding what is a recession and what true impact might it have on your organization. And then we started to look at, yes, it's a challenge. Yes, it's a problem if there's an economic downturn, but are there also opportunities in there? And then we took it to the next step, which is, where are those opportunities? Where do they come from? And we realized they come from our people. If we prepare our people well, if we equip them, then they will be more agile, more resilient, more innovative, more collaborative, and just go on and on and on with that list. They will be the difference between whether we just survive a downturn or whether we actually thrive. And there are many, many organizations that have gained huge market share and made a name for themselves during recessionary periods. None of us wants to face a downturn in the economy, but they come and go. And the beauty of that is the go part. They do come, yes, but they also go, which is a very good thing. The better we can prepare ahead of time to be ready for for that kind of a downturn, and that's a recession is simply a slowing of economic growth, the better, or even some negative growth, and, and I understand that, it isn't just the fact that you hear about job losses and, and we have negative economic growth and we struggle with, you know, what's going to happen and all of the uncertainties. That's what this series is really all about. Let's not focus and waste time, energy, and focus on things we can't control. Let's put all of those important resources into things we can control. And that is the things in our organization and especially our people. We have walked through four different steps so far. I've talked about the first one. The second one Assessing. What is assessment? How can you assess in a variety of different ways? What is important to do the preparation that you want to do? Then the third piece is equipping. That's the next step in the process. We equip people to prosper. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Let's say we don't have a recession anytime in the near future. Great. That's wonderful. That's good news. But if we prepared our people and invested in them, we're even better ready, capable to do more. 
because we've invested in our people. And that is one of the biggest differences between organizations that have an excellent employer brand, that attract the best talent, that keep good talent, and that really differentiate themselves in the marketplace is the fact that they invest in their people. Equip people to prosper. When that happens, all kinds of good things come out of that. Increased engagement, greater levels of success, greater levels of productivity, performance, profitability, really good things happen because things happen through people. It isn't just the widget. It isn't just the computer that does what needs to be done for our organization to be successful. It's the people that use those tools. And then last time we looked at aligning everything. And I think alignment is probably one of the least understood area that is a part of this series. What is alignment? What do you align? And the more we start to look at that, and I had a specific acronym for align, and that helps us to focus on what's important, that we can really take that and put it to practice and keep us on track as we continue to align things. What are we aligning to? Our strategic goals. What do we need to accomplish to get there, to get the success that we want and desire? Now we're going to take a look at what do we do with all the good work that you've done. If you've gone through these steps so far, these four steps, really taking the time to get into them, understand them, put them into practice for yourself and for your organization. Now, what do you do with those? Well, the answer to that question is now we take action. We've done a lot of hard work to this point. Now it's time we take action to help bring focus to the specific ways we can take action. Here's an acronym I've come up with. And I know a lot of you may be going, oh, please, not another acronym. But this, these things help me stay on track. These things help me stay focused on what I really, truly want to accomplish. And I put some time and thought into creating something that's truly going to be uh, guardrails to keep me in my lane when I'm focused on a specific area. In this case, taking action. And I, and I use the word action. To call it action orientation, it starts with A for accountable, and then there's C for culture, T for target, I for innovate, O for ownership, and N for navigate. Some of those words may not seem to fit into an action orientation framework, but I think once you hear the definitions of them and the way that I'm using them, it will start to make more sense. Let's start with accountable. Does everybody know what it takes to be successful? 
for themselves, for the team, for the organization? Do they understand expectations, standards of performance, uh, visibility of progress? That's a big one. Do we have some kind of a visual management system where people can see how things are going? That's really important. That, that is a magnet that draws people in, that they want to know how they're doing. They want to know how their team is doing. Do we have coaching and supervising to support our people? What about, have we clearly laid out consequences, both on the positive side and on the more punitive or negative side, if that does happen, that things don't go the way we want? And have we clearly identified competencies that are needed? And if we have gaps in those competencies, have we put in place training processes to enhance those competencies, those skill sets? So when, when there's a clear and understandable success pathway, that's what I call what I just talked about. When that's in place, then you can start to create and cultivate a culture of accountability. A culture of accountability promotes action. Accountability creates an ownership mindset, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. When everybody's practicing accountability, and accountability, it's a part of a culture, sure, but it's a set of practices as well. You can talk about accountability all day long, but if you don't practice it, you really don't have accountability. And when everyone practices accountability, agility and resilience increase, engagement increases, performance increases. People are the only resource in your organization that can put accountability into practice. Yeah, you can build things into your financial accounting and you can build things into software that are checks and balances and that that may raise red flags and all of that. But guess who has to look at those things to do something about those things, to take action on those? It's people. They are the ones that have to take action on those things. And all of those tools are wonderful. But it's people that are going to be accountable and take action to either correct something or redirect something or to keep something moving forward. When we talk about a culture that takes action, because culture is the next in the acronym that we'll talk about, what does that have to do with taking action? And I think that's a fair question. Consider culture here in a way that may seem a little bit different. What if you had a culture of accountability, of continuous improvement, of innovation, of getting things done? You can have a culture of getting things done. Then you have a culture that is already taking action. It's an action-oriented culture. To not take action would be out of the norm for that culture, for that group 
of people, that organization. Action-oriented cultures are on a continuous cycle of prepare, practice, perform. Those three things. Then that cycle starts over again. Prepare, practice, perform. Prepare, practice, perform. Much like the OODA loop that we've explored in another blog, in another podcast, the process I'm expressing allows individuals, teams, and organizations to be in constant motion. If an organization is in constant motion, it takes less energy to redirect them than it does to get them started into motion. And I think you know that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I see many organizations who are too busy. Now, they're doing things, but most of the time, what I find out is there's a lot of misaligned activity that's going on that's not really productivity. And this, again, is where culture impacts action. Building an action-oriented culture that is already in motion, I think that's a winning equation right there. So let's look at the T in our our action acronym. T is for target. Kind of makes sense, right? The actions you take, for them to bring the value that you want, they need to be directed toward a specific target. Target, in this case, is some type of measure. It's a goal, it's an objective, that if you achieve it, you'll add value, you'll increase success. Targets are more than just expectations. They're expectations with specific timelines and specific consequences. When I work with salespeople, and this is a good example, I think, I see a very large disconnect many times. They know what their monthly goal or annual goal is, but they don't know what it's going to take to achieve it except enough sales. Well, that's pretty vague. Well, I just need to get enough sales. Okay, but how are you going to do that? Recently, I worked with an organization that had annual goals for their salespeople. They even had quarterly goals, and that's great. When I sat down, though, with individual salespeople, here's the question I asked them. Tell me exactly how many leads it takes for you to get an appointment. How many phone calls to set an appointment. How many appointments to get a sale. And what is your average sale and sales cycle? The sales cycle being the time it takes from the first point of interest from a buyer to when they actually close the sale. And many of you already know that. You c- <laughs> Crickets, right? <laughs> I mean, when I ask a question like that, it's obvious that you either know what those are or you don't. I didn't get much response on this. So I helped this team figure out what those numbers are. And here's what we came up with. 
for them, it takes three and a half. This is an average. All of these are averages. It takes three and a half leads to get an appointment. It takes nine phone calls to those three and a half leads to set that appointment. And of course, this is not the same person they're calling every time, right? It's, these are just averages. It takes 11 and a half appointments to get one sale. And again, not with the same buyer. This is just an average. The average sale is $163,000. And they have a six-month sales cycle. Now, there's something I'm just going to interject here that, that I was really excited about. We were able to get that sales cycle and cut it in half. We got that sales cycle down to three months when I worked with them. And I'll share how we did that. So it became very clear what type of activity was productive. When we added the EQ advantage, our EQ fit process, using emotional intelligence in the sales process, it cut the sales cycle in half. That's a big deal. You can make a lot more sales in a year if that happens. We literally improve sales from the inside out by focusing on preparing the salespeople first, then letting them practice, then perform the activities that we knew would be productive. That is the power of having targets. So instead of just some big target way out there at the end of the quarter or the end of the year, we had these targets that they could focus on every single day, every single week. And it made their focus so much more clear. The things they knew they had to do to be successful. And as they started to work that process, they were seeing increased success and success breeds success. That was a fun project. So what's the next letter? It's the I. I is for innovate. Innovation comes in many different forms. It can be small changes that add up, or it can be a complete pivot that opens the door to new opportunities and possibilities. The thing about innovation, it only exists when people are taking action. Brainstorming, testing, trying, reflecting, learning, redirecting. Notice that all of these are action verbs. Culture plays a huge role in innovation as well. Collaboration requires trust. And you can't have innovation if you don't collaborate. I mean, I guess you could innovate on your own, uh, but in an organization, the whole point of teams is to collaborate and innovate and improve as you, as a group, as you move forward. Trust comes from a culture where it is psychologically safe to share ideas and thoughts without fear of reprisal. The foundation for innovation is built on how good the connection is between people, how much trust there is between people in your organization. That's where innovation is built. If you don't have good connections and good trust between your people, 
good luck with innovation. Innovation and creation are not exactly the same thing. There may be some creativity in innovating, but it really is all about taking what we have and what we do today and finding ways to improve that. Now we get to the O. O is for ownership. And I know ownership is a seriously overused term. The ownership I'm talking about is individuals taking personal ownership of their responsibilities and their efforts. And I guess I want to take that one more step. Not just responsibilities, but the outcomes that are achieved when they make the effort to accomplish their responsibilities. So I'm going to take a quick side trip here, but there's a reason for it. Allow me to do that, if you would. When we do talent searches for critical positions for some of our clients, I see a massive, and I mean massive, number of resumes. One of my pet peeves or criticisms of most of the resumes I see, well, it's something that looks like this. I am or was responsible for. My responsibilities are, as a part of my responsibilities, I think you can see where this is going, right? Let me say this as gentle and as direct as I can. I really do not care what your responsibilities are or were. What I want to know is, did you complete them? Did you do them well? How did you do them? What did you learn when you did them? I want to see numbers. I want to see actions in a resume. So if you're thinking about building a resume, please remember that as you do that. Or if you're helping somebody else build a resume, don't let them fall into that trap. Um, So back to own your actions. If you own something, you tend to give it more attention. If you own your job responsibilities, then a lot of the wasted time that happens in organizations like blaming other people, making excuses, being defensive, a lot of that goes away if you're taking personal ownership and other people are taking personal ownership of their role and their responsibilities. Wasted resources of any kind, especially time, is something that takes away from the action orientation that we're looking for. Effort, we haven't touched on effort yet. Effort is just as important in personal ownership. In truth, our effort is one of the things that only we control. Nobody else controls my effort. You can tell me what to do. You can show me what to do. You can make all kinds of goals and guidelines. You can do all of those kinds of things. I am the only one who can make the effort. And when we start to understand that, a culture of personal ownership also extends to personal effort. We own our efforts and their outcomes. And this is true whether we think we own them or not. 
We, I mean, we all know that, especially if we've been a supervisor, manager, leader. Building a mindset of personal ownership in the culture of the organization and the individuals in an organization, it accelerates taking action. It removes roadblocks. It removes bottlenecks. It facilitates collaboration and trust building. It is absolutely critical to innovation. And the last letter is N for navigate. Last but not least. So what are we navigating? Challenges, relationships, emotions in ourselves and in other people, politics, policies, situations and circumstances, deadlines. And I'm sure you could probably add more to that list. It seems like most of our days are spent doing one of two things, either avoiding or navigating. Notice one is not taking action. Well, I guess avoiding is an action, but it probably isn't very productive. Navigating is action-oriented. The funny thing is, usually the things we avoid come back around, so we have to navigate them anyway. There's a secret superpower in that list I read you just a second ago. Navigating the emotions in ourselves and others. Why do I call that a superpower? If you explore this, I think you'll see that at the root of avoidance, procrastination, roadblocks, at the root of those things are emotional detractors. Things that, that emotions that keep us stuck, that cause us to cycle and not move forward. There are two things that a lot of people fear. Maybe you're one of these, maybe you're not. Here, here they are. People do not like confrontation, so they try to avoid it. People do not like making a mistake. So not only do they try to avoid it, they may spend more time uh, doing something so they make sure they're absolutely getting it right to the last decimal point. Not everybody's like that, but probably a large majority of people actively seek to avoid those things. The problem comes when that stands in the way of forward progress. There are many other emotions that we experience every day. Some of these have a long lifespan in us and others may be short-lived. The most important thing to understand about emotions, you choose the emotions that you allow to live on in your life. Now, I'm not saying you have control over the emotions that you feel that are generated when you experience something. We're all going to have those emotions that are generated. But neuroscience tells us in about six seconds, those emotions start to subside unless you choose to hold on to them. Will there be some residual amounts of those emotions? Sure there will be. But our brains have a way of removing the intensity of those emotions over time if we allow that to happen.
Now, let's go back to navigating. Why is navigating so important, especially navigating our emotions and the emotions of others? If we do not navigate well, then forward movement can grind to a halt or at least slow down significantly. If we practice thoughtfulness in balance with action, that's also kind of the way our brains work. There's a balance in our brains when we allow both the rational and the emotional parts of our brains to work together. Each of those support the other, which creates accelerated success and outcomes. So to close this out, taking action is the fun part. You've done the hard work of assessing, equipping, and aligning. Now you're ready to take action and move forward. Your plans and processes will be the guardrails that keep you on the road and allow you to move quickly and with agility. Be courageous. Know that most roadblocks people have are self-imposed. You control how fast you go. The more internal roadblocks you remove, the more open the road is for your success. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Building Healthy Organizations by EQFIT. We do understand how the human brain works and how that impacts behavior and performance in the workplace. We also love hearing your suggestions and ideas. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at info at gscfit.com. For more information and inspiration, check us out on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and of course our website, eqfit.org.